You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies Anime Edition. Or Japanime? Remember when they called it that? Japanimation. Japanimation? Yeah. Have you seen the latest Japanimation? Yeah, that was the thing. I knew that term before I knew anime, because that was the term that kids on the playground in my young years threw around. And if you go... Kids on the playground knew that term? Yeah, all the, <laughs> all the kids on the playground. All right, Jake, you caught me. I've never been on a playground in my life. <laughs> I was homeschooled, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the kids that I knew that were my nerdy friends that were introducing me to this stuff initially called it Japanimation in the late I, 90s. If this is not the first time I heard that term, you could I uh, Knock you down with a feather? Yeah. I, I just don't think I've heard that term before. Well, Ben what's the word scowled or squinted in agony or something when i said it so <laughs> or adjusted his monocle i did <laughs> <laughs> something japanimation please <laughs> my dear boy <laughs> <laughs> so you're familiar with that being a thing that gringos t- toss around whatever the japanese version gaijin oh <laughs> <laughs> toss around a dumb term anyway yeah and this is not, not anymore. Yeah, nobody anime has conquered the world. It makes lots of money. It's a big industry. The kids love it. And we are going to talk about today Spirited Away from 2001, arguably the masterwork of Hayao Miyazaki. Let me just throw out some stats before we even introduce ourselves. This is the most successful and highest grossing film in Japanese history per Wikipedia with a total of 31.68 billion yen, which comes to $305 million. So, pocket change by Marvel standards, but it's a lot of yen. Yeah. 31.68 billion yen. I held the record for 19 years until it was surpassed by uh, <laughs> Demon Slayer Kamitsu no Yaba, the movie. Colon Mugen Train, <laughs> hyphen Dawn of Justice, <laughs> in 2020. I uh, won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature at the 75th Academy Awards. Miyazaki famously did not attend because he did not want to go to any country that was bombing the heck out of Iraq. I'm making it the first and to date only hand-drawn and non-English language animated film to win said award. Co-recipient of the Golden Bear at the 2002 Berlin International Film Festival. And has been with the top 10 of the British Film Institute's, the BFI's list of top 50 films for children up to the age of 14. In 2016, it was voted the fourth best film of the 21st century by the BBC as picked by 177 film critics from around the world, making it the highest ranking animated film on the list. In 2017, it was named the second best film of the 21st century so far by the New York Times. All right. And I did a list one time of for something or other of the best films of the 21st century. And if I had remembered to include animation, I think maybe I would have made a similar choice. (sighs) Anyway, that's the movie we're talking about today. One of the most acclaimed movies of the last decades. And who are we? You might be wondering. Well, three of the most acclaimed podcasters. Of, of the, the 20th century. Of the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, 21st century. We're, we're working on the 21st. Yeah, we're still working on the 21st. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> We've got the 18th and 19th in the back. 20th is good. 21st, not looking hot. But listen, you're still wondering who we are. I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. And I know the most about movies. Yeah, there's Ben. He's the Spreacher. The Spreacher, who's a st- teacher. 
of cinema. That's me. That's you. Hey. And hey, hey. We've got. <laughs> That's racist. We've got racist That's jokes. Very racist. <laughs> <laughs> but why don't you introduce Jake Son? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I got, I'm, I'm restraining myself here. Hi, Jake. This is Jake. Jake is the Hi. Jake is the <laughs> this is the pastor who's a master of cinema. Yeah, that's me. That's you. Yeah. When you say hi, Jake, are you just affirming what I'm saying, or are you saying like hello? I'm saying hello. Okay. I wasn't sure because because um, we're talking about a Japanese movie. Yes, but hi is a Japanese word. Right. You but, might not have <laughs> realized but that. You might not have realized that I'm not Japanese. <laughs> I'm just a white dude from Southern Indiana. Huh. Yeah. Explains your aesthetic. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. It does kind of explain his aesthetic. <laughs> it, explains a, it explains a lot, actually. <laughs> if people thought that Jake was Japanese. <laughs> They've been confused yeah. up till now. They're feeling a lot of illumination right now. <laughs> well, listen, guys, what history do you have with Hell Miyazaki's Spirited Away, with anime, with Miyazaki in general? We actually talked about Miyazaki. <laughs> Before, when we did another masterpiece, My Neighbor Totoro, I was going to say what year that was from. I'm going to say 1989. I'm trying to remember. I'm going to say 87 or 89. 88. 88. Oh, man. Split the difference. Split the difference. I knew it was somewhere in there because he did that and Kiki like right on top of each other. And then everything else he's taken like five or six years to make. So, anyway, Ben, why don't you go first? What is your baggage with the uh-huh. works of Miyasan, as he's called in the documentary? Hmm, let's see. As a kid, I, I don't know if I was a teenager or not, maybe a preteen. I had friends. No, I, that's right. My cousins were into Princess Mononoke, which had been released in the U.S. and, and dubbed. And mm-hmm. people thought it was... There's some blurb if you see the cover of Princess Mononoke, which says, like... It, oh, yeah, the Star Wars of animated features, whatever that means. I still don't really know what that means. We can compare this to a popular thing, so you'll go and see it. That's what that that's, means. That's all that it means. So, But I just remember watching it as a kid and not getting it and, like, not being absorbed in it. Not bothered by it, really, but just, like... You weren't bothered by, like, heads being lopped off? For some reason, no. Well, is that recall? Scary demons. I, I don't know why not. That, that was one of the selling points when I, my friends were like, hey, you got to see this. This is crazy. This, you know, it had a little bit of the allure of the forbidden, which sure. Miyazaki usually doesn't really have, but Princess Mononoke has a little it, bit of that. It, it does. And I, I think I was just a little bored. Like, it's it's actually, for all that it has, heads being lopped off and demon wood gods and stuff, it's actually, it's a very sober drama. Yeah, the action is pretty, I mean, there's great action, but it's it's just in little pockets. And there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of like, here's a village. People work in the village. We make guns. This lady takes care of the lepers. Seems like there's a reciprocal relationship between the humans and the environment, which we're going to talk about. And there's just all this stuff happening that's like not, it just, it just, anyway. So I liked it okay, I guess, but I didn't, I wasn't, it was was not something I came back to as a kid or cared about. And then I remember seeing uh, some anime late at night on Cartoon Network adult for their swim. for their Adult Swim se- segment, and I had I had I caught little glimpses of anime here and there, and it's just weird. It really is an other world because you've got the Japanese aesthetic and you've got the Japanese style of animation, and then you've got their religious and spiritual overtones, which are strange, and you just feel that the way they tell stories is not the way that 
your shows tell stories. And it's not the way you tell stories. It's not Lord of the Rings. It's like something else if it's fantasy mm-hmm. or sci-fi or whatever. And I don't know, to me, it blends together. Like I saw, I started seeing things in college, like Akira was a famous crossover anime that got popular on video, very violent, very puerile, let's use that word. Yeah. Not worth seeing, I don't think. And and some other stuff. I, I just, I got into it. So, but I think I went forward too much in time. On TV, on Adult Swim, I saw Cowboy Beep Up. I saw an episode or two, and that is the most stylized, like amazingly stylized aesthetic I had ever seen. And it's mixing and matching Western motifs. So yeah. it's all stuff that you can kind of recognize. That's right. In a funhouse mirror, as they in say. A, it, yeah. Yeah. So that one has Cowboy Bebop is also plural in its way, it, but it has, it has handles you can grab on. You're just like, this is a cool action hero. He's doing cool stuff. There's a villain. There's the hot chick. And so... It, but but all of it blended together in this way that I had never seen anything like before. I loved the animation. I just loved, but I saw an episode or two and that was enough to just put it in my brain that anime was really cool, was really worth watching, was really striking. But I also, I already had an inkling then that anime was, maybe more than an inkling, that anime was also perverse, like that it was also dangerous, that like on Adult Swim they had... S- some show about people in space or something and i just remember seeing the intro and in the in the intro there's a silhouette of a naked girl in a shower just a silhouette but it was still basically pornographic and this was in just the intro like the music to the show and so i that was also in my brain like this stuff is not i can't just go like looking for this and watch all of it and i don't want to for whatever reason so i never did like i never just went for it I always felt very, like, on guard with anime, and I think that's wise. Even Cowboy Bebop is one of the more appropriate things like that, and Cowboy Bebop has stuff that's objectionable. And anyway, so I I guess it was after that that Spirited Away came out, and I saw it in college. Spirited Away was awesome. One of the best things I had ever seen. Just one of the most gripping and engrossing things I had ever seen. And I loved it. I saw it a lot of times, not in the theater, I don't think, though it was in a limited release at the time. And then I was, I was like, I was open to all things Miyazaki. Saw Princess Mononoke again, loved it, loved it as an adult. It's really, it's not a kid's movie, <laughs> actually. And I, I saw, I saw some other things here and there, but I never just like waded in and was like, I'm going to find all the anime things. I would try to look at even some famous anime shows, a number of which like Neon Genesis Evangelion have made their way over here, Mm -hmm. sort of in a limited way. But you watch the first episode of something like that, and there's enough perversity or promise of perversity that it ought to put you off, in my opinion. And there was. Like, and there's, there's enough things like that that I've, I feel like my intake has been relatively limited. Miyazaki is someone I don't have that worry about, for good or ill. Miyazaki is not pornographic it's not what he does <laughs> Miyazaki would share most of your opinions about the Japanese animation uh, yeah industry he's, right. he's quite critical of it yeah and he thinks children should only see two or three movies a year preferably his <laughs> <laughs> he's basically said that in interviews um, he's I know that he's kind of a curmudgeon mm-hmm. but I appreciate that side of him so far as it goes the Japanese um, have a word 
Otaku, otaku, I think. Otaku is a, is an anime or manga manga thing. Well, yeah, it's like a nerd. It's their word for That's nerd, right. but it has a much more sharp edge to it to call somebody that. There are certainly people that claim it, just like there's people that say they're nerds or geeks here, mm-hmm. but. For a certain generation, like for Miyazaki's generation to say we live in a world of otaku, it's to say we live in a world of people who've just given themselves to this stuff. Yeah. To it's the girls that it's a word for like the girls that dress in the mini skirts, like as if they're Sailor Moon, the guys that change their eyes and all the weird perversity that surrounds Japanese animation and Japanese pop culture I mean, obsession. Yeah, you, you you don't have to look much farther than the way that boys and girls or, or women or men are often drawn in your typical anime show to know there's something perverse about sexual, sexually perverse going on here. The girls are oversexed. The boys are feminized. There's just a weirdness and a grossness to it that if if it strikes you that way, you are you are correct, right. basically. And there's a generation of kids, high school kids that have basically and, and, and into adulthood who have adopted that kind of weird and fanalized sexual thing. And um, Miyazaki doesn't have any patience for them, for one. Go watch a K-pop music video. I dare say you'll, I'm sure J-pop is the same. But I, I say that just because I, I happen to be with a friend at a restaurant watching there were K-pop music videos on and all the boys have on makeup and look like anime characters. And it is just like, I don't know, it's the same kind of sexual culture in a live action music video is something you might see in an anime, at least on the surface. So, that comes to mind. All right. So, anyway, I like anime. I don't, I'm not comfortable with most of it. I'm not even comfortable with things that I've seen. And I'm like, that was really cool. Like Cowboy Bebop. Not recommending that you watch it. Don't know that I'll ever go back and see it again. I do like it. I like Miyazaki. I've gone back to his films many times. I've seen Spirited Away probably like eight, nine times now. Well, just to put a little, to give a little context to Ben's baggage, Ben is exactly of the generation, and so are we all, uh, that the internet happened and Uh a more cosmopolitan approach to pop culture happened and anime came over and Adult Swim introduced it to a general, like, there's there's just anyone who had was plugged into nerd culture at all, which I don't think we, we all were to varying degrees, but uh, me and Ben more so. But I don't think any of us was just like totally plugged into it. But but anyone who had any kind of association with it was mm-hmm. was going to have an encounter with with anime because it just it dominated. And you had Harvey Weinstein bringing us Princess Mononoke <laughs> and then the Disney Corporation bringing us Spirited Away. And, mm-hmm. you know, if those guys are sensing, hey, we can make money off of this, yeah, then that's because there's there's a change. Um, yeah. And now you watch an, an, an animated Netflix show made in America and it, it adopts the designs and the stylings of, of anime. Like it's mm-hmm. just there's, there's a lot more crossover between the different styles. Right. And stuff. Jake, you're... Baggage with Spirited Away and Miyazaki and anime and all that good stuff. <clears throat> I I guess if it's possible to have lived under a nerd rock, I lived under it. Mm-hmm. I had no experience whatsoever with anime. Nerd I, rock, like they might be giants. It took me a minute, but it was totally worth it, folks. Anyway. <laughs> exactly what I meant. Worth interrupting Jake for. <laughs> I never watched Adult Swim I didn't care about any of that stuff. It was for nerds and geeks, and I was not one of those people. So my experience of anime, I just don't have any that I can recall from 
being a kid or in high school or college or anything like that. I'm pretty sure the first time I ever watched an anime film was when Ben gave me Spirited Away for a Christmas present. So, this is the first, I think, anime movie that I've seen. Showed it to my kids and... Uh, <laughs> and You're it, welcome. And they, you know, it didn't, it didn't go down too easy. Since then, we've watched a handful of I think the second one that I tried on the kids was Princess Mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Turn that Oops. off pretty quick. Yep. Um just didn't know what I was getting into. It's just like Ben and Nathan say Miyazaki is cool. We tried Spirited Away. Let's try this other one. <laughs> yep. Princess Mind okay. It's got wolves in it. Okay. <laughs> you're, so it does. you're in the first two minutes and you've got people's heads being lopped off and shot off with bows and arrows mm-hmm. and people being speared and the giant demon creature like absorbing everything around it. Uh-huh. It's just horrifying stuff. Uh-huh. It's like, well, okay. And so you'll be shocked to know that I came back. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I think that we watched was my neighbor Totoro, which... Uh, is awesome and sweet and appropriate for any age. And my kids love that movie. And we've since watched see Howl's Moving Castle and Ponyo. And I guess we slipped in other sort of basic standard fare things like Avatar, The Last Airbender, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. American show influenced by anime. An American show influenced by anime and various other things that we know that we love that have been influenced by anime or are in that same sort of styling. So anything that Dave Filoni, who worked on Avatar The Last Airbender, has done, that sort of thing. Hmm. So, I mean, we've tried other American style things, but Netflix is going to do The Dragon Prince and it's going to be cool. And then they're going to stick in a bunch of LGBT stuff and be like, oh, yeah, we can't watch this now. So... Hmm. So that's more or less my experience of anime and I really can't, I've tried and would like to watch Cowboy Bebop, but I just don't have uh, really the time or the space to to dedicate to, to doing something that I can't watch with my kids. It's that, mm-hmm. and that my wife is also not really interested in. Right. So, so, yeah, I guess that's where it is. I, I mean... I do think it's it's at least interesting. I uh, I'm not as taken with the with the cool factor or whatever a sense of cool factor about it. But I like Miyazaki's films. I like showing them to my kids. Totoro's cute, Banyo's cute, Kiki and Howl were fine. So yeah. My baggage is more similar to Ben's than it is to Jake's. I mean, I have watched my share of anime. I think I probably discovered it with things like Trigun or Cowboy Bebop on Adult Swim. Like many of my generation did. Sorry. I enjoy things. As we've talked about many times, uh, I think me and Ben both to varying degrees enjoy movies from Japan or Japanese culture or samurai culture or whatever you want to call it. It's just an interesting world. Mm-hmm. For me, it's it's my favorite. It and China, I guess. The Orient, if I'm allowed to say that. I'm not allowed to say that. Whatever you're supposed to call that chunk of world. Asia. Asia. Yeah. That was the word I was looking for. (laughs) For me, Asia is close enough to us, but different enough to us that I find it interesting and not off-putting. Like my wife loves to watch movies and read novels and read books and watch documentaries about India. 
to me, India is just like weird and pagan and it looks like everything smells bad and there's mosquitoes. And maybe that makes me a horrible racist, but I just, I do not enjoy entering into the world of India. And there's any number of continents and places where it's like, well, it's just not really my thing. But China and and Japan both have this weird relationship with the West that I find endlessly fascinating where it's like, these guys are all dressed like businessmen and they're doing businessy things, but they're bowing to each other. Why? What is this sense of honor? Things like that. They they act like they, they look on the outside like people who have a Judeo-Christian ethos and mm-hmm. we have good versus evil in this story. <laughs> but then the good is kind of acting like evil and the evil is kind of acting like good. And where's the line and what do they actually believe and why is the hero being so brutal or why are the good guys being having honor or why are the bad guys having honor here but but being completely callous here those mm-hmm. kinds of questions that kind of exploration of that of that culture are pretty endlessly fascinating to me and obviously the hong kong film industry I'm, i know i realize i'm lumping several things together but i i dare say there's many of our listeners who are gauche enough to lump all these things together the hong kong film industry was obviously ahead of us in action for a long time mm-hmm. gunfights karate uh Karate. Kung, <laughs> kung, 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 kung fu. Kung fu. Just top of the line. I mean, Die Hard, when it came out, was the gold standard for action. But Die Hard was just doing things that Asia had already gone way past in, in terms of their ability to do dynamic action scenes. And so, and, and then anime and Japanese culture has adopted a lot of Hong Kong stuff and yeah, so I've I've always thought that it's cool. I don't know that I people there were growing up there were nerd friends who would just watch anything that was anime because it was anime like they just thought it was so fundamentally cool. I mean, for me it always does come back to the story. It it, it something could have the prettiest animation and if there's not actually a narrative there that's interesting. I mean, but then I'm also the opposite of people who just will not watch anime. They're just off-put by it. They just find it weird because it's not it's just not the animation style or whatever. They just, they cannot, they have a block. I don't have that block. I also, I mean, I, I think I'm more attracted to it than not, but, but I'm not going to give something a pass just because it's pretty. I feel like I've seen a lot of the, the masterpieces, the, the standard texts of anime. I've seen Akira. I've seen Ghost in the Shell. I've mm-hmm. seen, yep, likewise, uh, all those, all those things. Watched a lot of the more influential, TV shows, or at least the ones that made it to the West, um, there may be things that are considered much more popular by someone who actually knows what they're talking about, who's like, for example, from Japan, but Trigon, Cowboy Bebop, that kind of stuff I'm pretty familiar with. My familiarity has died down since the early oddies, since I uh, achieved a little something called adulthood and didn't have time to, you know get magna or anime or anything like that keep up with it anymore i'm still intrigued when i hear that there's a good one when Mm -hmm. when one makes it over here when one hits it big i I like to know what it is and if it sounds interesting i'm inclined to see it i think it's a cool art form and i think it's only gotten better in the wake of computer technology which has taken a lot of the grunt work out of it some early anime things from the 70s and 80s or even stories that you like or sci-fi worlds that you like are so clunky in their animation. You know, they do the thing that 
people used to make fun of. I don't know if it's still around enough for us to make fun of it, but where, where they just have like the still shot that they zoom in on the guys like flies supposedly flying through the air or something, but <laughs> we've just got some motion lines behind him that are kind of wiggling and he's just like, ah, flying. <laughs> just, it's, it's just a picture that we're zooming in on basically. Lots of cheap shortcuts like that. And even the work of Miyazaki, even the greatest of anime is going to be animated at a lower frame rate. They're going to draw less pictures, generally speaking, than like a Disney thing. And so it does feel stylistically different. And it does feel maybe if you're not used to it a little bit, what's the word? I don't know, clunkier or cheaper cheaper or mm -hmm. something like that. But you see all the work that's been put into other areas. Like the backgrounds. The backgrounds yeah. can be incredible paintings, basically. There's just a difference in what they put their, put their elbow grease into. And with Miyazaki, this isn't true of all anime, but with, with Miyazaki, the background characters, the little mm -hmm. things. I mean, he's very... The only artist I could actually compare him to, I'm sure I could compare him to plenty of artists, but the one that comes to mind is George Lucas, who's just so generous in the original Star Wars trilogy with, let's put another monster in the background. Let's have another little thing going on. Let's have another character. Let's have this guy who's sad about the Sarlacc dying, or not the Sarlacc, the whatever, the thing under Jabba's palace. Rank. The Rancor. Let's, let's have, the Rancor has a handler, and you know what? Everybody <laughs> loves somebody, so the Rancor's handler is crying when the Rancor gets Spirited Away is just full of those kinds of little details. I'm sure we'll talk about many of them that, that just bring the world to life. And I love that stuff. Anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with my baggage. Uh, my, my larger baggage is I'm intrigued by the world. I'm intrigued. I've seen most of Miyazaki up to through Howl's Moving Castle. I've never seen Ponyo. I've never seen How Did this get made what's it called mm -hmm. uh, no that's the one he's working on now uh, the wind rises yeah i've started the wind rises i've never finished it i think i've seen all of his oeuvre other than that i've also seen some of the oeuvre of his business partner Taka Ta takahara, takahara. Grave, of the, grave of the fireflies yes if you want to see the saddest most depressing thing that has ever been made it's it's a it's a realistic depiction of children suffering during world war ii yeah, and it's just devastating. And the fact that it's animation allows <laughs> it to be palatable. Like it, the animation simultaneously allows you to draw closer to it and gives you enough distance to not just shoot yourself. But but that's it's a neat trick. And man, I don't know that I ever want to see it again, even though I, it's some kind of masterpiece, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, yeah, you can tell I have a lot of sympathy for all this stuff and I like it, but it's interesting. If Spirited Away, I did see in the theaters. Uh, I think my first interaction with, Mia, with with Miyazaki was Princess Mononoke, and it was my friend saying, an arm gets shot off by an arrow. You have to see this. So I, we watched the, the DVD or video <laughs> or whatever it would have been at the time. I was like, this is pretty cool. I think I did like it the first time, but I didn't. I, I had the sense of, I don't get this. Like, what is this actually about? <laughs> Why does the bad guy just kind of give up at the end? All these things. This, the the worldview of Miyazaki uh -huh. is difficult to wrap your head around if you're just watching one for the first time as jake's kids discovered when they tried to watch spirited away mm -hmm. but then i did see spirited away in the theaters in 2001 when it had its limited release loved it have have not seen it since i thought it was great i thought it was a masterpiece when i saw it but I just for whatever reason never made it back to it and so this was my first time seeing it in i guess over 20 years and we'll find out what i thought but yeah 
I feel like as you were talking, I was thinking, you know what? I've seen more, probably, I've seen more anime movies than I represented myself as having seen. Yeah. I haven't been so careful that I haven't seen quite a few of them. Right. You probably saw most of the things that I'd mentioned, mm-hmm. like Ghost in the Shell. I did, yeah. Multiple ghosts. And number two, yep. Yeah, in the shell. <clears throat> Which we cannot recommend. No, no, I mean, I'm not <laughs> recommending any of this stuff, but there have been times where I've tried to be coy about what I have and haven't seen, and it just it just never works. So, I, I, uh-huh. my philosophy is to just yeah expect people to accept that I'm being descriptive and not prescriptive sometimes. And if you lack the maturity to do that, then there are many other podcasts you can listen to. Okay. So, Spirited Away, let's talk about Miyazaki real quick. I do have some context. You can go for more context to our episode on My Neighbor Totoro. But there's so many things I want to talk about. We got to talk, Ben's going to talk about Shinto. You did a little research on Shinto. I did a little. Well, it's nice to yeah. know. That's, that's really important because this is arguably his most Shinto, Shinto y <laughs> movie. Well, Princess Mononoke is. Yeah. I also haven't seen that one for 20 years either, so I yeah. don't remember that one. Well. <clears throat> My name is Totoro is quite Shinto. I mean... There's lots of Shinto. He's, yeah, there's a lot of it going around. But, okay, so Shinto is a Japanese religion, like a folk religion. It's kind of weird because it's more, from my brief reading, more like, a f- I want to say framework. Mm-hmm. It's, it's... Well, there's not a central text. There's not like a Bible that's of right. Shinto. There's not... And it's not so concerned about a certain set of morals that you have to... Or, or a certain... So, it's not so concerned about doctrine on the one hand. And it's not so concerned about... It's, it's got kind of an amorphous morality. Mm-hmm. What it's really about is, one, there are kami. And kami are like little spirits that indwell everything. I always think of Pocahontas touching the rock and it lighting. That's right. Every, everything has a spirit, has a something, has a name. That's, 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 yeah, that's, that's what this is. And so you could, you could call it animistic. It used to be that the kami were just conceived of as these kind of amorphous essences, some like higher realm of essences. Right. But when Buddhism was introduced, interestingly, all the kami got anthropomorphized. They all got thought of more in personalistic terms. So, so Miyazaki's re- creatures are kind of riffing on. <laughs> Traditional Shinto, but combined with, with the kind of Buddhist I mean, cosmology. Shinto is so amorphous that it lends itself to being syncretistic. I'm just throwing out all the jargon today, folks. Yep. But I mean, it just combines with other religions, and it combined with Buddhism. And I, I, there have been movements. There's a lot of different forms of, of Shinto. It just kind of takes on the flavor of what's around it. So there have been movements to get, get the Buddhism out of the Shinto. There have been times when the state... The Japanese Empire used Shinto as as a state religion and as a means of control. But because aside from kami and anything could like your dead grandfather could be or could become a kami, something that you reverence, that you that you worship, that you want to be in harmony with. K a m i, by the way, not not like the red menace. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> K a m i. Um, th- the other thing that Shinto is about is purification. Mm-hmm. It's got all these rituals of cleansing and washing, and and dealing with corruption. And in Shinto, everything starts out uncorrupted and in harmony. And so, if there's a corruption or an imbalance, you purify it. There's yeah, no, there's there's no any, original sin. If there's any staunch morality to it, it's that. It's moving towards greater purity. Greater harmony. Greater harmony. Greater sort of generative power, creative power almost. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you, I think you could, maybe you could easily tell how a political state could use that idea could 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 define purity in terms with its own with what was most beneficial to the to the state and then 
use use Shinto as a lever. Right. Because like I said, it's more of a framework. Just hear all these kami. And so anyway, Miyazaki often uses the vocabulary of Shinto, so to speak, the idea of all these little spirits, anthropomorphic spirits and everything in his movies. The the three we just knew. So spirited away. There's a ton of there's a radish spirit. There's a there's a billion other there's little bird spirits, River there's whatever spirits. river spirits. The, and then in My Neighbor Totoro, there's forest spirits. And in Princess Mononoke, there's all kinds of spirits, wolf and monkey and whatever. Well, in several of those things, the spirits will be corrupted by literal pollution or by that's right man's corrupt nature or whatever. And, and they can kind of become. Yeah. It's like no face in this movie. He's not inherently evil, but. One way or another, and we can talk about what happens to No Face because the movie leaves it a little bit ambiguous, but he becomes corrupted by his environment. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, and so Shinto, apparently it's been, some people would say, co-opted by environmentalism. But Shinto is like in, in modern Japan because it's about keeping the environment pure and, and being in harmony with the forest spirits or whatever. But I don't, from what I've seen in my this Wikipedia article, it's not necessarily environmentalist. Right. Miyazaki uses it that way. In, not like an American liberal environmentalism, I wouldn't say. Not shrill, but just like, hey, you, you should have an idea that nature matters, that you depend on it, and that if you destroy it, you'll end up destroying yourself. No, I think one of the saving graces of, if I can put it that way, of Miyazaki's environmentalism Although it can be annoying in some of his movies, but, yep. but in a movie like Spirited Away, it's like, for better or worse, this guy really believes this. It's not just a fashionable hat that he's wearing, like in so many liberal Western right. movies. It's like this guy, this is part of his deeply, maybe maybe it is his deepest held belief. Like he he really, he really enters into it for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah, he does. I don't find his environmentalism offensive. I would understand someone watching Spirited Away for the first time and thinking, ah, this is the same leftist garbage that I've witnessed in the United States. But I don't think it is. I think it's it's a separate thing. You could say it's different leftist garbage, maybe. Sure, yeah. But it is different. It is different. I don't know what else to say about Shinto. It's, I I don't, I don't, I think I remember reading or hearing that Miyazaki doesn't believe in Shinto. No. Uh, but whether or not he does, he's just using it uh, metaphorically in spirited away. Well, let me talk about Miyazaki. That's a good lead into him because he's interesting. I watched the documentary. Did you, have either of you guys watched Kingdom of Dreams and Madness? It's the no, documentary. I wanted that to see that. It's on HBO. <laughs> I'd like to see that. It's really interesting. And it basically, you just hang out with Miyazaki for a couple hours while he's making The Wind Also Rises or whatever it's called. Huh. And he's a really interesting figure. So first you go to his studio, Studio Ghibli, and... The way that they portrayed it in the documentary, which the documentary is obviously something of a puff piece, but I think you can see through the cracks enough to sort of get an idea of who the man is. Anyway, he's built himself this studio that's like Rivendell or something. There's these grassy spaces and stained glass windows with light pouring through and as much nature as possible. And everybody's kind of spread, spread out in this large environment and do, working on different animation. And Miyazaki's just in a room, apparently quite accessible to everyone else, just in his corner, drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing and smoking cigarette after cigarette after cigarette <laughs> after cigarette. Everybody, <laughs> everybody smokes, which is an interesting aspect of Japanese culture. Uh, anti- when was this made? 
Uh, this would have been made two years ago. I want to say three. Yeah, two or three years ago. It's it's when he's making his. So he's working on a movie now, but the movie that came out before was The Wind Rises. Rises. That would have been like ten years ago then. Two thousand thirteen. So this is like maybe two thousand eleven that they're filming this. Yep. And he's a really interesting guy. So he's a small, compact man. Very elegant, very regal in in a sense that you might think of as Japanese, very quiet. He's always wearing an apron and he always has a cigarette. And I was trying to think how to describe him, like his personality as it comes across in this documentary. The thing you have to understand is he's not a Walt Disney figure, or maybe he's closer to the real Disney, but he's not like the Disney that we have had presented to himself, nor nor does he want to present himself that way. Mm -hmm. He's not... He is the kind of guy who's has a lot of sentimentality about children and like every day he walks by the school and he waves to the school children as he walks to his studio from his house and he'll talk about doing things for the children and how children can see things that other, he has that kind of patter but he really comes across less like a lovable uncle and more like a Gandalf kind of figure <laughs> kind of a quiet clever cranky sort of world weary guy he's constantly talking about things like the the person on the documentary asks him are you worried about the studio's future after you're gone and he says the future is clear it will fall apart and that's just like that's and and he goes home one day and they follow him to his house and he's walking into the house and he says "Ah, i should draw better tomorrow damn it and and that's just that's miyazaki constantly i mean he's he's got this strain of real japanese fatalism and you see it in his work but you particularly see it in this man he he seems like a very sad man i'm not going to pretend like he doesn't have a certain charisma and certain wisdom or anything like that i mean he does seem like a guru or something i mean he has some of the qualities that you'd sort of want him to have i guess but he's a much more austere figure than like a walt disney or i don't know who you'd compare him to his employees seem to like him they interview people who Uh, say things about how like if you want to express your own vision go somewhere else and if you can be broken go somewhere else because he's going to demand everything of you and so some people some people who are very talented shouldn't come here because they're they're not willing to just give everything you see him just in his little alcove drawing you see his the other people doing the business you see them talking about ghibli toys and do we need to do a todoro line of this or that miyazaki seems to be above that kind of thing at the end of every day miyazaki and his team go to the roof to gaze at the sky so he's got he's got a lot of weird whimsical touches i mean again really the best person i could think of to compare him to is somebody like gandalf or something it's a weird mix of whimsy and kind of austere crankiness hmm. and, and cynicism even or fatalism. I don't know. He has a goat. <laughs> I'm just throwing out random things. He has a goat. He has a toy goat that he leaves in the window of his house because children like to see it. And he takes it out for different seasons and puts it. So he does do things like that. But, but, in, but in kind of a sad, this is what I must do for the children of the world as everything passes away and turns to rubbish <laughs> kind of a way. He pontificates several times in the documentary about the post-industrial revolution and how everything's terrible. He says, this is a direct quote, even animation is just a grand hobby. How do you know it's worth anything? It used to be you could make films that mattered, but now 
<laughs> doesn't have a good relationship with his son. I'm sure you're going there. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking of that. I'll get there. But yes, well, he says, another thing he says in the documentary is, children keep me going. Not any child in particular, but children. <laughs> <laughs> so he really is an interesting massive contradictions. It's hard to sort of pierce through the documentary and get to exactly who he really is. But whatever he is, he's he's a very sort of sad figure. I mean, it, he seems like the kind of guy that would own the room if he walked into it. Not not with, in, in being gregarious, but just like in being the center of of the energy. Like he's he's a powerful figure. So it's an interesting documentary. If you like Miyazaki, if you like these movies, I recommend watching it. But a little bit quickly about him. He was born in 1941. He lived through World War II. He remembers it. He hates it. So much of his movies are born of that hatred of the war. His father supplied airplanes, and he's never really forgiven his father for that, even though his father was, by all accounts, a decent man. So at some point in the documentary, somebody, some, an old, somebody in their 80s writes Miyazaki a letter and says, during one of the bombings, your father gave me chocolate and it meant so much to me. And Miyazaki is so moved by this and it takes days for him to write the person back a letter. And when he finally does, it just says, that was my father. He's, he's this weird contradiction because he was supplying the planes that were propagating this horrible war or perpetuating this horrible war, and yet he would give you chocolate. And so he seems to really want to love his father, but also, like, how can you? He ends up being taken under the wing of, of Takahata, the Grave of the Fireflies director, and fresh out of college, and they do art together and do animated films for television together. And then they break off and found Studio Ghibli in 1985 after doing... Uh, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind together, which is was kind of their calling card. They also did Castle of Cagliostro, right? <clears throat> movie based on an existing property, right? Which is which is a fun Indiana Jones kind of movie, but mm -hmm. it's, it's not really indicative of all of Miyazaki's later work. Um, yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't just simply because it's another property. But Valley of the Wind is because it's the most obnoxiously preachy <laughs> allegory for. <laughs> ecological stuff yep yep so anyway miyazaki takahata and this businessman named suzuki who's a very charming figure in the documentary just like the guy that actually has to do all the work while miyazaki sits in his corner and draws and is a genius this guy has to go to business meetings and try to explain miyazaki i really liked this guy actually suzuki he has to maintain a relationship between so miyazaki so takahata took miyazaki under his wing and kind of helped him up in the business. And then they founded the studio together and they kind of dabbled with producing each other's films. But then there was ego and there was competition and they're both a little bit snide and about each other and there's some tension there. So this uh, Suzuki guy kind of keeps, keeps everything going. Tak Takahata works out of a different office and, and Miyazaki. I, I don't know. You can read a lot of interesting things in there as far as the jeal jealousies and the rivalries. But uh, yeah, Ta Miyazaki goes on to make a series of masterpieces, uh, Castle in the Sky, My Neighbor Totoro in 88, Kiki's Delivery Service in 1989. He's known for his environmentalism, for his pacifism, for his feminism, although his brand of all three of those things is a lot different than the way we would think of 
any of those things. Mm-hmm. And, and we can talk about that. He married a fellow animator and they had two children and has been alluded to. Goro has said that his father gets zero marks as a father, but full marks as a director of animated films. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So has, <laughs> has a strained relationship with his own children and, and admits it, says he was busy working and tried to be a good father, but in the end, I wasn't very good, he said was often absent and just just the classic textbook this always mm-hmm. happens when you read about somebody who does great things for for children so so that's miyazaki he's uh, i don't feel like i've captured him very well but he's hard to capture because he's he's an interesting mass of contradictions he is likable in the documentary he does smile he does joke around he does seem to have a good relationship with his employees he is he is especially fond in a non-creepy way but in a striking way of young women as i think you'd probably expect if you watch his movies he has a producing partner or somebody in his office who's a younger lady and he's just constantly kind of bouncing off of her ideas and jokes and she's just basically there to smile and be cute and listen to all of his ideas and make him feel like he's not an old man so read into that whatever you will dear listener are you, <clears throat> I, maybe you're going to say this, but he, he, when he talks about Spirited Away, he talks about how it's, let's see, it was a very good friend's daughter who yes. was 10. Yes, I'll, and, talk, about, I'll talk about okay. that now. So, he has five young female friends and as he described them, basically, basically a, a daughter of a friend, uh, a fellow worker at, this, at Studio Ghibli and her friends. And he would spend every summer with, the, with them at his mountain cabin. And when they were 10 years old, he wanted to make a movie they could enjoy. And that's why he made Spirited Away. This is a quote from Miyazaki. We have made Totoro, which was for small children. Laputa, that's Castle in the Sky, in which a boy sets out on a journey. And Kiki's delivery service, in which a teenager has to live with herself. We have not made a film for 10-year-old girls who are in the first stage of their adolescence. So I read the Sojo manga, such as Noyakoshi or Riban, which they left at my mountain cabin. I felt this country only offered such things as crushes. This is a little bit of Miyazaki's patent and hatred for anything popular that's not him. I felt this country only offered such things as crushes and romance to 10-year-old girls, though. And looking at my young friends, I felt this was not what they held dear in their hearts, not what they wanted. And so I wondered if I could make a movie in which they could be heroines. If they find this movie to be exciting, it will be exciting. It will be a success in my mind. Mm-hmm. They can't lie. Until now, I made, I wish there was such a person leading characters. This time, however, I created a heroine who is an ordinary girl, someone with whom the audience can sympathize, someone about whom they can say, yes, it's like that. It's very important to make it plain and unexaggerated. Starting with that, it's not a story in which the characters grow up, but a story in which they draw on something already inside them, brought out by the particular circumstances. I wanted to tell such a story in this movie. I want my young friends to live like that. And I think they, too, have such a wish. So he looks around, he sees that everything for 10-year-old girls is crap and romance and Sailor Moon is Hmm. my reference point for it, at least. I'm sure that's way too old of a reference point. But he's like, let's just make a movie about what a 10-year-old girl actually experiences when she begins to go through adolescence. Her parents turn into pigs. Yeah. And she's enslaved by an evil witch. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's a perfect metaphor. <laughs> it actually kind of is. Uh, a couple other questions, interesting quotes from this interview. 
the interviewer asks, why did you make a story that takes place at a, a place at a bathhouse? He says, for me, a bathhouse is a mysterious place in town. The first time I saw an oil painting was in a bathhouse, and there was a small door next to the bathtub. I wondered what was behind that door. So I thought up a story about a young man, but it was rejected as well. Um, where did the idea of bathhouses being a place for gods come from? It would be fun if there was such a bathhouse. It's the same as when we go to hot springs. Japanese gods go there to rest for a few days. They return home saying they wish they could stay for a little while longer. I was imagining such thing as I made images of the film. I was thinking that it's tough being a Japanese god today. <laughs> wish he laughs at his own joke there. I should, st- I should stop and go back, by the way, and say the way that these films are made is that he storyboards them. He takes years to storyboard them. They're never scripted. There's never a script. He just storyboards them. They start production while he's still storyboarding. So they never know exactly where these films are going to go while they're making them. And I think that crazy. might be evident. It, it is crazy. And I think it leads to the one weakness of most Miyazaki films, which is generally that the ending is just like, well, okay. Guess it's over now. Guess it's over now. And I would argue that Spirited Away has that weakness. I would argue that you'd be hard pressed to name a Miyazaki film that doesn't have a little bit of that feeling. But maybe that's part of their charm. I don't know. I feel like it's part of his worldview, actually. I've always taken it as intentional mm-hmm. feeling. I mean, if you want to call it a weakness, it probably is. But it's just like, life goes on. Yeah, I mean, it's the one thing that feels so foreign to me, literally foreign, about Spirited Away, that Chihiro's final test is such a throwaway. It's not. I mean, she's grown. I don't know. We can talk about it. We'll get to it. This person asks, just a few more of these questions are interesting. What was the biggest difficulty in making the film? Miyazaki says, as usual, after the production started, I realized that it would be more than three hours long if I made it according to my plot. So I had to cut a lot from the story and make a complete change. I'm also trying to make the film using an ordinary man's eye this time. So I reduced the eye candy as much as possible and made it simple. I didn't want to make the heroine a pretty girl, but even I was frustrated at the beginning of the movie. I thought, what a dull girl she is. When I saw Rushes, I thought, she isn't cute. Isn't there something we can do? But as the film neared the end, I was a bit relieved to feel, oh, she will be a charming woman. And then the interviewer asks, this is the final one, do you have any ideas on how today's children, such as Chihiro, can regain their energy? Miyazaki said, and this, this, this tells you as much about him as anything. If you let me have my way, I'd first reduce the amount of manga, video games, and weekly magazines. I would drastically reduce the number of businesses that target children. Our work is part of them, but I think we should let our children watch animation only once or twice a year and ban cram schools as well. If we let children have more of their own time and have their own way, They'll become, much, they'll become more lively in a year or two. There are too many people who make money off of children. There is evidence we can live without such things here in this park, yet there are too many things around us to relieve our unsatisfied hearts and boredom. This is the fault of ad- adults. It's adults who are in the wrong shape. Children are just mirrors, so no wonder they are in the wrong shape. End of quote. And the interesting thing, having watched that whole documentary, is like if we've said that, you know, there are too many things that relieve our unsatisfied hearts and boredom. We need to reduce those things. We would be saying that because we would want kids to find things that actually satisfy. But I think, and Miyazaki has a little bit of that, but he also has like a a real strain of, well, kids need to discover that nothing satisfies. (laughs) (laughs) Life is ultimately pointless. And you, yeah, you just have to live with, live with the tension. Yeah, you've got to live with yourself and you've got to live with the tension. And like Chihiro, you have to just kind of grow up at a certain point. I and mean, <clears throat> if we ever do The Wind Rises, man, what a nihilistic movie. 
I don't know that I want to see it again. I mean, it's awesome as a movie. It's fantastic. Well, he wanted to make it more nihilistic because this documentary captures the moment where he's like, oh, okay, we'll add a last beat that is actually somewhat happy or, or, and his producer is saying to the camera, oh, good, thank goodness. Like he wanted to make this so much more nihilistic than it actually was. Well, you just feel like his whole life is in that movie, which is a, which is a fairly realistic picture of a guy designing airplanes for World War II. And it just, life is impermanent. Everything is going to die. Live while you can. Well, and we're all part of an industry that like even, even our best works will be used against us. You see, you see a little bit of this, you know, I'm part of an, I'm part of an animation industry that corrupts children actually, but even my best work may not last and may be used to sell Totoro puppets to kids so that they will forget their problems and not actually face themselves. And and so Mm -hmm. he has that, he has that strain of, of nihilism in him. That's (laughs) just Japanese film for you. He's very Japanese. Yeah. All right. Well, there's your context. There's your baggage. We are also watching this somewhat as a companion piece to Nathan's favorite movie, Song of the Sea. So I suppose we can draw out comparisons there if we want, or maybe we can just leave Song of the Sea in the ocean, Hmm. far down deep in the ocean where it belongs. (laughs) Is that where it belongs? Yeah. People can go and watch it down there because it's so great. (laughs) It's in that treasure chest, right? Right. Just have to get the key of... to go down there drown die like you deserve <laughs> drown it yeah people who I watch song of the sea people who watch song of the sea deserve to die that's what i was trying to say that's what that's what i heard no it's great it's great it's a wonderful metaphor for grief all right <laughs> <laughs> speaking of wonderful metaphors for grief we're going to need wonderful metaphors for grief for our audience if we don't talk about this movie properly starting now so Spirited Away, what did you guys think? I guess we'd all seen it in the past, and now we were all coming back to it. I was coming back to it after 20 years. Ben was coming back to it. Probably after two two years at most. After two years and having seen it many times. A lot of times. A lot of times. Jake was coming back to it after Ben traumatized Jake's kids Yeah, with it maybe, I'm going to say, five years ago? I don't know. I don't know. Time flies when you're having fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what do you guys think about old Spirited Away? I think it's pretty great. Straight out of the ed. Mm. Straight out of the ed, huh? What I always liked about it was, well, one, for me, it just felt like, oh, I recognize a fairy tale when I see it. Mm -hmm. And this may have bizarro Japanese stuff that I don't understand, but it's just a fairy tale. Yeah. And I think that's a decent handle for it. And I, I don't know. I like I like that in the movie, you're actually, it's actually teaching, the little girl develops by learning all these lessons about work mm-hmm. and politeness. Yes. And it, so, a lot of the movie works on that level. She's scared. She learns to have courage. She learns to work hard, be polite, take responsibility for others. And then, on the other hand, it's like an allegory about how in order to survive in an industrialized world... You have to have love. Mm-hmm. And you need a closer connection with your environment too because it's bad. When you live in a high rise and you make lots of money and you're greedy, that's not good. Mm-hmm. If you had a closer connection with your environment, that would be better and you would be more sane. 
and you wouldn't be greedy and you wouldn't turn into a big monster. Right. <laughs> so it's got it's got just all of it's got all these layers. It's it's a, like a critique of capitalism, I guess, if you like. And it's sort of environmentalist in in its own Japanese way like we were saying. Mm-hmm. And then it's also a fairy tale about a girl learning courage. And it's it's got it's and it's got it's just a weird blend of all these things. It's got all these monsters and creatures and it, but but everything everything kind of has its own every piece of it sort of has its own moral lesson or economical lesson if you like mm-hmm. to it and it all works as an adventure film with some really fun action sequences I don't know so you love it to pieces I, buy two copies of the DVD I one, guess, one for yourself one for your friend I guess so I mean if you guys want to tear it apart you know I'm all ears I mean it is a weird it's pagan it's not Christian. It's it's weird. I'm not. I don't know what to say. I think more than anything, any of Miyazaki's other movies, it feels pagan. Not not in like a wicked way, but just in a this. The bones of this are not built on a Christian. I hate this word, but worldview. I don't know what a better word is. Like there's there's no. It's it, not. But but what I don't mean is that it's wicked. What I do mean is just that it's weird. It's just it's just. These are not exactly the same lessons that we would draw for Chihiro if we were... No. But they're not bad lessons. They're just... Like, he really does care that she learns to be polite. And that's fascinating. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's a big deal, is that she's a little brat at the beginning, and by the end, she's bowing, and she's she's just dealing with people better, looking them in the eye, that sort of thing. And that, that like, really matters to Miyazaki in a, in a way that it would just never occur to us one way or another <laughs> in the West to, yeah. to make that a component of our movies. Like, it's just... Yeah. I mean, I guess... I'm sorry, but just to... My, my other thought is there's... One of my favorite scenes is when she's on the train. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it's about, like, the loneliness of the... I just... Everything in this movie is, like, his commentary on modern life. Mm-hmm. And... I just feel like he nails a lot of the way that modern life can feel. Like lonely, like being overworked, like not knowing your place in the world, not knowing how to be connected with other people or with the world around you. Mm-hmm. He just, I don't know, he just he just gets that. Maybe a lot of anime does, but Miyazaki is more insightful. Yeah, I mean, I think this might be be one of the best movies we've talked about on the podcast i mean nah i'm not gonna say it's like like the best better than casablanca or something like that but in the 21st century i think you'd be hard pressed to name its equal i I think it's an absolute masterpiece for for all the reasons that you just mentioned i think it taps into fears desires and memories from childhood for me personally in a way that i can name nothing else that even comes close i don't think so maybe it's a p- more of a personal thing, but the things that he uses as his his motifs, tunnels, boats, trains, fields. I mean, obviously, those are some of the Dr. Freud would not be very challenged to have to describe why those things are meaningful. But the particular way that he uses them really taps into feelings that I had when I was about Chihiro's age. I mean, I can picture yep. specific tunnels I, I went through that were magical. I can think of fields that felt like there's just a field between our apartment and another apartment building. And somehow there was something that I, mm-hmm. I don't want to over, I don't want to exaggerate too much. I, I didn't live this Ray Bradbury childhood, but there was something. You weren't attacked by a witch in a balloon. 
Well, and also I wasn't just like, no, I wasn't. <laughs> well, yes, I was at that. That that happened. <laughs> okay, you got me there. I did ride on a magical carousel that <laughs> made me hundreds of years older. But it's not like every time I walked through a field, I was like, oh, I'm going into a different world. But I do have those thoughts and associations. Mm-hmm. I do have certain dreams that I remember about walking through fields. So even just the field that that the, they get to when they're when the parents after they go through the tunnel yeah, when they're standing on that field with the grass blowing it's like that's so eerie and evocative for me personally at least maybe for everybody I don't know I, I I agree I agree it evokes all that stuff like the the I mean what what he's doing of course is he's surfing on uh, what do we always have to like self deprecate and say I don't want to be the Gospel Coalition when we do this because mm-hmm. I always want to do that I'm sorry because we don't want to be the Gospel Coalition yeah well because they're cheap and stupid whatever I mean God's glory is in the landscape and one thing the pagans have always gotten is that there's a there's something about it mm-hmm. something about that field that's that's more than just a field and I feel a connection to it. Well, if I, okay, I'll let me be double gospel coalition-y. Go ahead. In a way that's maybe, I hope, better than the gospel coalition. The, like, in the Judeo-Christian version of that, too often, like, if Spielberg's going to show a field, he's, he might show you the glory of God in the field, but he won't show you the fear of God in the field. And that's something that Miyazaki understands. Is This, this isn't a horror movie. There's nothing that's overtly creepy about it, but it does have an eerie, otherly feeling to it a lot of the time in the tunnel, in the field, in the abandoned train station, in the train later on. Mm-hmm. And it, it just gets at that. Like there's something bigger than you at work here. Yeah. And it's not necessarily going to go your way. There's something that's actually scary about it. Not overtly. I mean, the music is often telling you two things at once. It's this beautiful little piano score that's mm-hmm. telling you to be serene, be calm, whatever. But then there's something discordant in the background. And that note of discordant is what makes this movie special. The fact that it's able to to thread that needle to never actually be, I, I think, even creepy. I'm, I'm sure there's a certain sort of kid that would just be creeped out by it, that who for whom it would cross the line. But I think for the average adult viewer, it doesn't cross the line into actually creepy at, at any point. And yet it's all kind of, uh, sorry, this is my booking word, fey. It's all kind of... Mm-hmm. Uh, magical in a way that has a bit of the sinister to it and that's how life is and that's if you're going to be gospel coalition about it a a, a field doesn't just have god's wonder it has god's fear in it and so i think this movie captures that just about as well as Hmm. as anything that i could i could name Mm -hmm. and i had a dream when i was a kid that i went to a park with my parents and they left me there and this was like one of the most foundational dreams of Nathan's childhood. Like this, this dream is, is just like the nightmare of my childhood. And it wasn't about, oh no, I'm, it wasn't this feeling of dread, like, oh no, I'm going to be eaten by a wolf or something like that. It was more of this weird, creepy feeling of existential dread. Like I'm going to have to figure things out for myself and my parents aren't around and I may not see them again. And I'm in this park and night is coming and it's not the fears of monsters in the night. It's like the fear of night itself or something like that. I don't know how to capture it exactly, but a really foundational piece of Nathan is that dream. 
And I'm sorry to be talking like this, but this is the way that this is the kind of thing this movie brings out in me because it's like Miyazaki could not have done a better job. Like he, he really tapped into that feeling, this whole movie, that feeling of, well, it's not that you're going to die necessarily or anything, but your parents are going to go away. They're going to be out of the game at some point and you have to deal with that. And there's, there's a fear that comes with that. Like, I don't know. I'm just babbling now, but that's the, that's the kind of thing that this movie taps into. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Jake? You haven't said much. Does this, we going too far or maybe it just doesn't do it exactly the same for you or maybe it does or what are your thoughts? Big picture on this? I said it's straight out of the ed for a reason. It does tap into all those childhood fears and and things. I don't have a lot to say about it. I mean, do you find it to be compelling that it does that? Or is it just like, well, I guess it tapped into that stuff. Nathan, any movie that has John Ratzenberger in it is going to be a profound spiritual experience that taps into my childhood. So. Norm! No, he's not Norm. No, he's Cliff. He's Cliff. Cliff! Cliff. Yeah. Uh, I never cared about Cliff. He's like my least favorite character from Cheers, I have to say. He wasn't my favorite character from Cheers either, but he's in every Pixar movie, so... Plays... Who does he play? He plays the pig. No. He does. He plays the pig. Ham in the Toy Story series. He... I actually have it right here in front of me. He plays Ham in the Toy Story series. P.T. Flea in A Bug's Life. Yeti, the Abominable Snowman in Monsters, Inc., he is the school of Moonfish in Finding Nemo. He's the Enderminer in the Incredible series. He's Mac the Truck <laughs> in the Car series. He's Mustafa the Waiter in Ratatouille. He's John in Wally. He's Tom the Construction Worker in Up. He's Gordon the Guard in Brave. He's Fritz in Inside Out. He's Earl the Velociraptor in The Good Dinosaur. Bill the Crab in Finding Dory. Juan Orto Donchia in Coco and Fenwick, the Cyclops construction worker, and Onward, and so... And he would appear on Fox News and announce his support for Donald Trump. That's the thing he did. Yeah, He's been in absolutely everything until 2020. There you go. Then he died, I take it. No, he's still alive, actually. Oh, okay. Still active. They haven't had him do the last couple of Pixar things? I guess not. He finally crossed the line? Probably with Trump support. (sighs) Rats, what you thinking, man? All right, so you you cleverly deflected the question with this John John Ratzenberger statement, but I feel like reading between the lines, maybe this movie just doesn't grab you the same way that when I say it's like the masterpiece of the 21st century. I would not make it the masterpiece of the 21st century. No, I don't. I don't count it that high. I think it's a a good children's movie that taps into a lot of the. Childhood fears, like I said before, it's straight out of the id. It, it taps into like the symbolism and the fears and all those things. Those are, I recognize everything that you're saying. I, I feel but, it. But it's not like a personal. I don't feel some, I mean, I can enter into it on that level. I mm-hmm. think if I wanted to watch it on that level, I could. I did not want to watch it on that level. And so I didn't. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> uh, sounds like we should come back to this in like 10 years or yeah. something. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody can relate to that, that feeling of being a kid and that I'm on my own and I have to figure this out kind of, kind of fear. And I think I would say what's compelling about 
the Shinto is of it all is not the fear of God in the field, but the presence of spiritual realities and forces that are opposed to God that mm-hmm. make things feel move from a kind of glory to a kind of ominous. This is against me mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in a way that has less less to do with God being against me or and more to do with just the demonic and things like that. I feel that sort of thing at work all over the place and in this movie. So it feels dark in that sense, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that, that there isn't a, a fear of, of God alongside the, the wonder. It's just that there's it's just a bigger, deeper, more spiritual world it, 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 than our sort of materialistic yeah. enlightenment framework. Mm-hmm. So I feel it, operating in opposition less to the a fluffy Judeo-Christian or evangelical framework and more in opposition to a Darwinian materialistic enlightenment framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, on a visceral level, on a story level, then I think the Judeo-Christian framework is, that's where you feel that, or I feel that. Right that uh opposition or that just mm-hmm. otherliness that uh is off-putting in a way that i think is bad mm-hmm. but i appreciate the alongside of it the just the fact i mean i don't want to say i appreciate the shintoism of it all but the re-spiritualization of the world that we live in mm-hmm. um, in that fairy tale sort of sense as ben was saying earlier yeah, I think that's all I really mean when I say the fear of God. I, I'm doing some math and getting to an, a, the end of an equation that you just filled in all the different pieces of. I mean, insofar as all of that stuff finds its meaning in the fear of God, ultimately, that's kind of what I mean. But I don't think, like, yeah, I'm not saying, like... That this movie will instruct children in the fear of the yeah, Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is not... Let's not do a Bruno is Jesus, the field is the fear of God thing. Mm-hmm. That's, not what I'm saying at all. I'm, I'm saying insofar as Dracula is connected to the fear of God, this movie is connected to the fear of God insofar mm-hmm. as all fear is actually. But that's a big leap. And I'm glad that Jake actually gave us the, the footwork instead of just hmm. leaving us at the leap. Yeah. So, but, but Jake, you didn't, <clears throat> you felt it more as like, this is not something I enjoy entering into. This stuff is like the Shinto of it all is messed up, which obviously it is. That's what you're saying, right? Like it took away from the enjoyment of the film or am I misunderstanding? Uh, I don't, I don't think it's that deep. Okay. You don't think the film is that deep or? I don't think that my aversion is that deep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if the movie didn't make you want to get into it, then maybe that's a problem with the movie. Maybe that's a problem with you. I don't, I don't really know how to, it's like me and Agatha Christie. Everybody thinks I'm the Agatha Christie monster, but also I just don't like Agatha Christie, whatever. It's fine for other people. I mean, I know I always humorously push past that and say it's fine for idiots and that kind of thing, but actually it's fine for other people. It's just, it's just not for me. So I don't know. I mean, my wife hated this movie. She thought it was creepy. She, the Shinto stuff really bothered her, the radish God, the, Everything felt, uh, I mean, I would go so far, I, I am putting words in her mouth, she did not say this, but I would go so far as to say that she kind of felt like it was pedophilic or something like that. Just, just she felt sexually threatened on Chihiro's behalf the whole time with all these kind of Jabba the Hutt-like 
gods that are kind of creepy old men ish. Mm-hmm. Um, like the taking rat, baths, taking baths and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like she was just not like able to get past that. Oh, it's a little girl who has to appease these giant creepy male monster figures. Like that's, that's I'm out game over, man. No more, no more enjoyment of the movie for me. doesn't matter what other levels it's working on. That one level is so profoundly disturbing. Uh, and the parents being turned into pigs and the <laughs> lack of sentiment with which the parents are turned into pigs, I think, really turned her off. And yeah, just everywhere where at least Disney would kind of make it sad when the like would, would make the parents more likable, maybe do something to tell you how to feel about this and to give you a way to channel your feelings into something cathartic where this movie is just kind of like, well, her parents were jerks and they got turned into pigs and yeah, she loves them and she's going to save them. But sometimes people are jerks and they get turned into pigs. Deal. You got to deal with it. (laughs) They ate the wrong food. What are you going to do? (laughs) They ate the magic food. They ate the magic food. (laughs) It does remind me, I guess, just talking about it more, does remind me of this Long lost episode of G.I. Joe that I watched as a small child. <laughs> where everybody's faces melted off. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that episode. It's pretty, hor- pretty horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I looked that clip up on YouTube after you guys talked about it last time. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. Yeah. I can't imagine seeing that as a kid. I'd be yeah, super I'd disturbing. Think like four or five. That's terrible. Stuff like that is traumatizing as a kid. Yep. It was. <laughs> That lived with me, man. Still does. Yeah. Yeah, and remembering random, terrible animated stuff I saw, too. My Little Pony movie, I think, really bothered me. There's just, yeah. Ben's a brony. Nope. Did you say brownie? A brony. A brony. A, a, a male fan of My it's, Little Pony. I, I know what a brony oh, is. Oh, I'm sorry. I just thought Jake pronounced it brownie. <laughs> and I was like, do you think it's My Little Pony? He's not going to get any brony points yeah, if he pronounces it brownie. He's not going to get any brownie points. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. <sighs> okay. Well, all right. I think we still have to talk more about this movie. All right. What do you, you have anything else to say about the words that you put in Meredith's mouth? No. Mm-hmm. I think she's being fair. I think Jake's being fair, too. I still think this is a masterpiece. I mean, I think they're, I think they're both missing out mm-hmm. a little bit. And I think if they wanted to go the extra mile to do the work to meet the movie halfway, they might discover something really special, but I don't begrudge them not doing that work if they've got better things to do. Just like I don't begrudge anyone not doing that work with any movie. Movies aren't that important. But I, mm-hmm. I, but I think this is a, a work of a genius filmmaker and probably his best movie. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Well, as, I've, as I've said, it also does play on a lot of things that I felt very specifically and strongly in childhood. There are ways in which it works for me personally, that might not be universal. I mean, just the, the, his choice of iconography, like the abandoned train station at the beginning, mm-hmm. all the stages that take us into the magical world are so incredibly evocative for me. Like I've been in, I've done enough urban exploring or just been in universities after hours or been in buildings after hours. I worked as a janitor for a long time in buildings after hours when they're shut down, when things are a little eerie and weird. Like just the specific things he uses as his, his spaces the field the tunnel with the statue Mm -hmm. the car going through the kind of tree tunnel all that stuff i can think of exact analogs in my life like 
I was there. I was, I had that experience there. It's, it's just so evocative. So especially the first chunk of this movie before we even get to anything overtly magical, I just feel like the steps that it takes into, into the magical world or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it, into the world of the gods, into the numinous work so well mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. And, and the relationship with the parents works well. Their kind of low level irritation, the lack of sentiment. It doesn't feel like a nasty Disney. Like a lot of times when the kids and parents aren't getting along in movies, I'm just bored by it because it's like it's post downstream of Spielberg. Like he kind of decided to let's make let's show parents and children relationships in a sort of unsentimental light in something like E.T. Like we're going to have sentiment at the end, but let's also have the play time where they're just fighting over pizza or whatever. Famous scene with the famous slur in E.T. That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like so many movies do that trick now that just the standard default is parents and kids are kind of sniping at each other. Mm-hmm. And I get really, really tired of this. But this just felt more like realistic. They, they don't hate each other or anything. It's mm. just, there's nothing great. There's nothing particularly foolish about this father. Yeah, he's an idiot with his fast driving and stuff, but he's not, he's not a hateful idiot. And the mm-hmm. mom's not a hateful idiot. They're just kind of like dumb modern parents. And Chihiro's a dumb modern mm-hmm. kid. Yeah. And the movie's regarding them all with less sympathy than you might expect. It's just kind of presenting them. Um, and, and I like that. It rang true. Yeah, I like that too. Uh, and I, yeah, I always like the entrance and the build up into the fantasy world. It's just a lot of fun. Like in, in any thing or in this, in this movie, yeah. in this movie in particular. Mm-hmm. And I always thought it captured, I mean, I don't think I'm going to say it better than you said it. It captured that set of feelings like, yeah, there's something else. There's something special or like, like the feeling of a dream or something. Yeah, the feeling of a dream or the feeling... I mean, we had like a broken down house, a haunted house in our neighborhood. We had building urban exploration. I can explore... I don't know all the things I could compare it to. We had those tunnels. Like, it's just... And I suppose probably everybody did. But I mean, that's why this movie struck a chord with people. But he just chooses his symbols very well, I think. I mean, for as obvious as they are, a tunnel, it means transition into a different world. I mean, Miyazaki's mm-hmm. not the first person to think of that, obviously. But I can't think of many movies that use the tunnel better than this one. Maybe it's just that he has the courage to just be, not be afraid to just be completely Freudian or whatever you want to call it about it. To just say, the entrance into the magic world is a tunnel. Rebirth. And then there's a boat. I mean, there's just like all these different things with like the most heavy, obvious symbolism. A bridge. We, we get in the same movie, a train, a tunnel, a bridge, all these different things that symbolize death and rebirth and movement and passage and mm-hmm. change and have these associations. He's not afraid to just like slather them on. And I, and I admire that. And yet he underplays it all. It's not mm-hmm. like, Ooh, it's the spooky tunnel. There's the old saying that you must not into the tunnel. You must not go or you'll find things you do not know. It's just a kind of spooky tunnel. Yep. Every, everything has the weight of like, this is a metaphor, but also it's just part of the story. Yeah. And that, extends up to the parents eating the food which has that awful kid feeling there's a very specific feeling this movie evokes several very specific feelings that i could not name other movies that evoke them that well the feeling of not you doing something wrong or being in the wrong place but your parents doing something wrong Uh or or the leader of your kid kid pack might be more relatable for a lot of people like come on you guys let's go into this you know closed down place or let's let's trespass here and you don't actually want to do it, but you have no control over the group dynamic. 
and, and so maybe you complain, maybe you keep your mouth shut, but either way you have this feeling of I'm just being, it's not my fault. I'm not eating the food, but I know it's wrong and they're doing it. That's like a really specific kid feeling. It's really specific to about a 10 year old, like Chihiro, someone who's old enough to have some level of observation and make some level of judgment about the world, but not old enough to actually control a situation like that or feel very confident in just walking away from mm-hmm. it. And, and this movie captures that. And then, I mean, I'm just, I'll just keep going. Then you have Haku. And again, it's like, it's such a broad, he's the older boy who's protecting her and telling her what to do and having her eat his food and even unlocking her legs at one moment. And it captures a lot of those feelings of adolescent yearning and, but without ever feeling like it's trying to just say, it's a metaphor for adolescent sexuality, for virgin, you know, like it plays in that whole, it plays a whole symphony of, of that stuff, but without ever developing into like a major key melody where it's just gonna say that that's what it's about. I don't know. It's a really neat trick, Mm -hmm. I think. And then I guess we're going through the movie now. The bathhouse is awesome. Bathhouse is awesome. The frog is the frog. The going through the bridge is awesome. When Haku stuns the frog and he floats, I remember the audience that I saw with having an audible reaction to to that, like just the little <laughs> the little whoosh into the bathhouse and uh-huh. the frog. You just, saw it in theaters. Uh huh. Yeah, saw it in theaters. Two thousand one. Good twenty one years ago now. The last time I saw this movie. Weird. But the audience, that was like, for some reason, that frog getting stunned and then just floating, mm-hmm. just that, that extra little care and detail really made my audience lock in. They're like, yeah, <laughs> good job, Miyazaki, the frog. <laughs> and then we were all like. The frog is funny. He yeah. always made me laugh. We were all part of the movie. Yeah, I think uh, one thing it does is it suddenly she is in a different world with its own rules and it's all happening very quickly, mm-hmm. just very fast. And that's that's something he does. It it is it does have that feeling of like this is about becoming an adult and how much it can suck, right? <laughs> just but it just does that as part of the story. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I love the feeling of I, I love that this movie is essentially about a kid getting her first job, yep, and having to learn responsibility and it's so mundane, except for that it's at the bathhouse of the gods and uh-huh. she's stuck there and her parents are going to be eaten as pigs, so it's not mundane. But the set of feelings that it evokes and the things that it's playing with are actually just like, well, you need to get the boss's attention and he won't pay attention, you know, with Kamaji. He mm-hmm. won't pay attention to you. You need something from him. You need to know how to do the time card. But he's really busy right now mm-hmm. and he won't have time for you. Oh, and then he's actually nice and you feel that. Um, but he's not going to be nice unless you actually persist. Right. And everyone's going to treat you like crud until you're on the inside. Right. And then, and then they'll treat you like crud again until you're in their respect and then. Right. And there's just the feeling. I mean, I think Miyazaki's right when he says, I'm doing things that 10-year-old girls and, and people coming into adolescence can actually relate to instead of the things that they're told they have to relate to, like boys and cars and whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, like we all have to have our first job and earn people's respect. And Jiro has a series of moments in the middle of this movie where she does that, that the movie doesn't even bother to chart for you in the way that a Western, it doesn't say like, and now she's learned a lesson and the music reaches a crescendo and we zoom in on mm-hmm. one of the uh, mentor characters smiling. It's all just very feels like, well, and nothing happened. But it's really charting that whole set of feelings and associations really, really well. And then it's just got a bunch of bizarre, fun fantasy stuff like the fact that Komaji uh, give, gives Lynn a roasted newt to m- 
to bribe to her bribe to her. help Chihiro. And she's really excited about it. And she just looks like a human. We never really figure out. Who is Lynn? What is she? Who's Lynn? One of the slug women, apparently, but not ugly like they are. Right. For whatever reason. Right. And then she uses it to distract the, the radish god or somebody. Distract the, the, the one of the frog. Oh, yeah. Maybe yeah. it's Ratzenberger. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It probably is, actually. I think it's Ratzenberger that wants the roasted newt. Yep. Famed lover of roasted newts, John Ratzenberger. And then you Baba. Man, she's a great character. <laughs> yeah. She is great. She's more like greedy than properly evil. She doesn't just have it out for everyone. She'll just squash whoever gets in the way of her making a profit. Well, Miyazaki is famous for not having real villains in his stories. It's yep. always just everybody's got their own point of view. And to me, this feels so much more fairy tale than anything in Song of the Sea does. Because in Song of the Sea, it's like, well, the witch was just waiting for the right person to come along and solve this grief metaphor so that she could help us. But it's like, Yubaba doesn't care about Chihiro one way or another. She's just doing what she wants to do. She's just, she has that kind of classic indifference that a Greek god has, or it's like, she's, she is cruel, but she's cruel because she's incidentally cruel, not because she just, and maybe even because she enjoys being cruel, but it's not like she has it out for Chihiro I mean, each time I say things, like, well, okay, I guess she does have it out for Chihiro. But, it, but it's different than like a villain, you know, like the Wicked Witch of the West. Like, I'm going to get you, Dorothy. My goal in life is to take Dorothy down for the purposes of this movie. I'm obsessed with Dorothy. Mm-hmm. Like, Chihiro is one of a thousand things that Yubaba is dealing with. She's a minor annoyance, a minor blip in Yubaba's existence. And it's just, it's just one of those things. Like, the whole universe isn't bending to help Chihiro on her hero's journey or to acknowledge that Chihiro is on a, a hero's journey. It's mm-hmm. just other things are going on. She happens to to fit into them. And I love the baby and I love the lack of sentiment which was with <laughs> the baby is... Uh, well, the, the baby is another thing that just works as like, oh, we know parents like this. She may be a greedy, kind of capricious parent, but with her baby, she's going to be absurdly... She's going to be overindulgent. She's going to spoil it. She's going to baby the baby to a re- to a degree that's obviously unhealthy and bad, going to be sentimental and ridiculous, mm-hmm. even though she's a bad person who doesn't care about people. Right. <laughs> and who did she have this baby with? I know. I know. Where did it come from? Better not to ask such questions. Better not to ask such questions. Yeah. I love the fairy tale. This is classic even Western fairy tale, the idea of signing your name and giving away your name and your name being a totem of spiritual significance that, uh-huh. that a god or a malevolent spirit would be interested in taking from you. Because it gives them power over you. Right. Which which is true. Yeah. I mean, but Ch- but Chihiro, the name Chihiro, this is something you don't, you wouldn't catch unless you knew Japanese, but I remember reading this in a review or essay years ago. Chihiro means thousand fathoms and Sen, which is her replacement name, means the thousand so, it's the idea that she's just been absorbed into a faceless mass of workers. Mm-hmm. She's lost what makes her her, and she's in danger of just living the rest of her life. I mean, again, I keep reverting to economic metaphors because I think the film wants me to, but yeah, she's true. in danger of just living her life trying to climb the corporate ladder and make a little bit more money mm-hmm. and just forgetting anything else about her purpose or who she is. Yeah. I mean, it is a corporate metaphor, but I don't know. Why doesn't it bother me that it's corporate metaphor? I, maybe because it feels relatively fair. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course this can happen to you. Sure. 
it's a problem. <laughs> you can get stuck. Well, and, and Miyazaki seems to have some sympathy for you, Baba, and for the people that run this place. It's not... He doesn't hate them. Yeah, he's not saying, oh, no, they're going to burn down the forest and we have to stop them or something, you know, like a stupid... It's a fun pun with her name. That's right. I, I knew there was one, but I was trying to remember. Yeah. It's just one kanji removed. That's right. From Chihiro becomes Sin. That's right. Hmm. Which, which you see, you see visually. Yeah, That's right. So she just, she just. She pulls, she lifts one kanji uh-huh. and turns her from something specific into something. Generic. Generic. Ah, yeah, that's beautiful. How can't you love that? That's, ah, ah. It's very clever. Amazing. We get the stink spirit. That's Miyazaki at his most preachy and kind of ecologically. Although I've never been bothered by it. Me neither. I don't know. The stink spirit has all the garbage in him. He said was inspired by seeing a river that he knew full of garbage and, and the clean out project that ensued to make it nice again. And how much it actually stank to get get all the crap out of it. I think Miyazaki's <laughs> fatalism actually helps him here because where a Western or a Western liberal would be like, "You idiot! How dare you throw your bike into the river?" And Miyazaki's sense is more just like, "Well, bikes get thrown into rivers. Bikes, you know, people are dumb. Yes, people are dumb, but people are going to keep being dumb, and this kind of thing happens." And wouldn't it be nice if in a, this in in the case of one river, we could clean it up? Right. But I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> right. Yeah. The river spirit's dying. He's like a skull, weird skull. He's one of the creepier looking guys actually once she, mm-hmm. once she frees him. Mm-hmm. You can't talk about spirited away without talking about no face though. No, the most, one of the most iconic characters from mm-hmm. Miyazaki. Everybody loves no face, no face, no face. He's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. I've often heard that chanted. Yeah, people are always chanting. I didn't know what it meant until today. Yeah, Snowface. <laughs> uh, he's the lonely spirit. Well, I don't know. You you read him as a capitalist metaphor. I always thought he was, but you read him just more of the, a personality type or something. I was reading him as another sort of teenager coming of age kind of type. He is shy. He is lonely. He wants friends. He wants to be our heroine's friend. And he tends to absorb the personalities and the traits of people and things around him. So when he goes into the bathhouse, he absorbs its greed and its monstrosity. He eats the frog, who's a very callow, greedy character, and becomes more like the frog. And <coughs> and he and then when he's in nature and he's with Zaniba and all that stuff, he can be mm-hmm. when he's been purged of it, he can be good. But he's always going to take on or the 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 traits of those he's around. I feel a little more like he is just, he's a metaphor for something like hunger. Maybe mm-hmm. you're, if you, if you put hunger in the, if you put your appetite in the wrong setting and you don't have any self-control, you'll go crazy, which is what happens to him in the bathhouse. Right. He wants to eat everything and eventually everyone. <clears throat> and he especially wants what <clears throat> he can't get his hands on. It's like, I don't know if I were, if I were going to go completely metaphorical i'd say he wants to commodify sin and her care for others even Mm -hmm. he wants he wants to be able to sell that so but when you put him with with the good witch who lives who just works with her hands basically right like you put him to a good use that keeps him sane your hunger is tied to what it's actually producing and what it needs and what makes it happy instead of all the things it could desire that's Mm -hmm. that all feels a little strained or a little 
um, sweaty. No, but, but it's this, kind of sweaty that Miyazaki will often be. Yeah, I think so. So there is Zaniba. It is fascinating that the Good Witch and the Bad Witch look, <laughs> look exactly the same. Well, what, what, the, what the Japanese script says is we're two halves of the same whole, but we don't get along. Mm-hmm. And there you go. That's just metaphor again. Mm-hmm. Like, you ought to have, you, they ought to be friends if the world was going to work, but they're not. Right. They're, they often oppose each other. You know, the, corp- the evil corporation, I guess the, the dumb Western version is the evil corporation's going to destroy the land or whatever. But mm-hmm. anyway, it's like two kinds, two ways of thinking about work and its value and the products of labor that ought to be together, but they don't, they don't really talk. They just try to sabotage each other. Right. And uh, once again, I had more of a reading, like a, a sort of what's it like to be an adolescent kid reading. It's like, mm-hmm. you've actually got a granny in your life who acts one day, one day, one way and one day another. And <laughs> it's hard to make sense of it. I mean, it's interesting in the English dub, at least, that she calls Zabuba or Zabuba. Zaniba? No, she calls. And, and Yubaba. She calls, the, she calls them both granny. She does in the, in the Japanese as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, it's not that I think the movie is saying they're literally the same character, but uh, they are literally the same character. Uh, they are metaphorically the same character, at least. And uh, yeah, to run into this sweet old lady that has every quality, including the menace of the bad old lady. And mm-hmm. it feels like something that kids have to deal with, actually, that not a lot of movies uh, uh, hmm. capture. So my boss is in a good mood today. He's, he loves me. Yeah. And then you have the final test, which feels pretty perfunctory to me. But I, I, I guess I never minded it, never resented it. Sounds like you might resent it a little, but I just, to me, it's just like, well, this is a fairy tale test. I mean, you're going to have your parents turn into pigs. She has to recognize them. That's just fairy tale test. She, she already went through all the significant character building stuff. She set Haku free. We didn't talk about that. Yeah, she did set Haku free. <clears throat> she set Haku free. They flew through the air. Okay, that's the climax of the movie. And now this is part of the, part of the uh, denouement. Mm-hmm. Her character is established. She has a very simple test. And it just shows, okay, she's solid. Work is done. Time to go home. She's so, uh, to me, it always felt like an intentional, instead of a careless, like, how do we end this movie? It felt just like an intentional, like, you're good. You got all the big stuff done. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't say it's careless. I wish there was a little bit more connection. Maybe, maybe I'm just being a dummy here, but a little bit more direct connection to her maturation. Like, mm-hmm. what, what is it that she's learned? Yeah. Maybe this is just dumb Western Westerner in me, but like, what, what is it that she's learned or gained from this experience that allows her to now recognize the pigs from her parents maybe it's just that she's matured into an adult with some (coughs) some worldly wisdom i mean i think that's basically it i actually think so what i'd say is for me is what miyazaki's comment in the interview you read Mm -hmm. this is more a movie about she just draws on things she already has in her right she actually already has chihiro's best quality is that she recognizes and cares about people as people Mm -hmm. already so the first time she saw her parents as pigs like Haku took her to see them when they were fully pigs. She just remembered them. Everything else she did was to allow her to get to the point where she could just use her knowledge. Mm-hmm. All the politeness, all the care for her friends, setting Haku free from his imprisonment to a bad contract with Zaniba and the curse that she put in him. All, everything she did was just that. And so it just got her to the point where she could... That's all. Which, which in a sense is a very... Imp- 
Disney style and power message of empowerment. Like if you just draw on what's already in you, yeah, you can pass the tests. It doesn't feel the same though. Well, it doesn't feel the same because Disney would say, if you just draw on what's already in you, then you can be a prince or a princess. It, Miyazaki's like, if you just draw on what's already in you, then maybe you can survive. <laughs> maybe you can do a good job as a drudge worker at a... <laughs> at a bathhouse <laughs> it's just much more modest I, I think it really does i think actually modesty is a good word for what it has mm-hmm. he has a certain style of japanese humility humility before fate humility mm-hmm. before other people and just also humility about yourself so even his it's one of the reasons why a lot of his themes even his feminism which is through all of his work has never really rubbed me all all that the wrong way because it's not the cheap, like, if you're a feminist, then you can beat up a bunch of guys. Although I get he does have women beat up guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that never feels like the point. That it's always just more, maybe you can be integrated with your environment and have some sort of small positive outcome on mm-hmm. the world if you draw on the power. Which I'm not claiming is a wonderful message, but... I don't know. Maybe there's something not completely destructive about it. <laughs> this is not a crappy grief, grief metaphor like Song of the Sea that f- fails in every level and uh, offends <laughs> those with sense and taste enough to d- discern it. <laughs> <laughs> we can be glad of that anyway. <laughs> Can't we, dear listener? <laughs> now I'm being a troll. I, I still like Song of the Sea, I think. I'll see it again and maybe I'll see it next year and decide. It's a free country. Isn't that nice? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it means more people watch Song of the Sea. Well, that's too bad. But wow. we could be an Asian country and have it all censored for us. Yeah, exactly right. And just aspire to be nothing more than drudge workers. Drudge workers at a bathhouse. At a bathhouse. Yeah. And mm. have our stories be parables of just being content with that. Yep. That would be bad. Hey, I'm not trying to argue that Miyazaki's philosophy is anything all that special. I'm just saying he knows how to tap into a lot of stuff that is meaningful because uh, he's a good filmmaker and a good student of human nature and all that stuff. And Chihiro, I would say, is far and away his best hero, heroine. She is she is just very normal, very likable, very – Kiki annoys me a little bit. She's, she's, she's a little too wish fulfillment, feminist something, empowerment, but Chihiro is just – a 10-year-old girl. She has the strengths and the qualities of a good 10-year-old girl, I guess, but, you know. She needs the, Kiki needs the love of uh, a boy who's in danger in order to get her mojo back. I still haven't seen that one. It's not one of my favorites. No, it's not one of my favorites. It's probably maybe my least favorite. No, Hal's my least favorite. Yeah. Yeah, Hal's is just a disappointment. Yeah. Ashitaka is a great hero. And uh, Princess Mononoke. Yeah, one of his rare male heroes. He's an awesome male hero. Yeah, he's good. He's good. <clears throat> he's like, actually, I mean, he's actually like the patriarch, basically, in mm-hmm. the movie. The successful patriarch. Not awesome enough to get the movie named after him, though. No. That would be Princess Mononoke. That's right. Well, what else? You have you have the, I mean, you have the romantic relationship between, what's his name? Haku and Chihiro. Mm-hmm. In the Japanese script, in the in the in the subbing, it just says, you know, "What Zaniba says, he's your dragon boyfriend." Oh, really? Um, yeah, she does. 
It's interesting. I wonder why Disney felt the need to... I don't know. I mean, it is a 10-year-old girl and a thousand-year-old river boy. Thing. Yeah, although in the Japanese dub, he's played by a child or a about a 14-year-old actor, I believe. Sure, he is. And I mean, it's the same thing in, in the Japanese voice cast. Sounds like a young kid. In the American dub, though, he An sounds, older he sounds like he's about 30 or something. He's, he sounds significantly older than... Wait, not, I, I'm sorry. Maybe you, you just said in the Japanese voice cast. Did I just repeat what you just said? I probably did. I don't know. Whatever. Okay. So, yeah. I don't know. Disney cast Max Goof as uh, SM. Huh. So, Jason Marsden, the official voice of Max Goof since 1995. Jason Marsden. I don't know who that is. He's oh, Max. The, he's Goofy's son, Max. Oh. Like Goof Troop. It took me a minute, too, because I don't think of his last name as being nope. Goof. I forgot that that existed until now, actually. Yeah. So. Since 1995, the one and only Max Goof. The one and only Max Goof. He's been active since 1986. He does have Max Goof's voice, and that's funny. I can recognize it. <sighs> well, let's see. Is there anything else to say about this movie's plot? She gets back in the car with her parents. They drive away. Mm-hmm. Disney adds a silly little dialogue coda that the Japanese sub doesn't have. That's right. Where he's like, going to a new school could be scary. I think I can handle it. See, morons? Now she can handle it. Yeah. He's also Thackeray Binks. Who? Thackeray Binks, the black cat in Hocus Pocus. Ah, Huh. I have never seen Hocus Pocus. Likewise. One of my blind spots, I <laughs> guess. I don't feel too blinded by not having seen Hocus Pocus. Maybe I'll watch it this Halloween. <sighs> anything else to say about the plot or anything? Out of you? No. I don't know. I don't have coherent thoughts. This is a very episodic movie. It is very episodic. But it kind of fools you. In its way. It feels like enough's happening. And as an American, at least you're always kind of wondering, is Zubaba going to develop into a real threat? Are we going towards a plot? And you find out the answer is no. But <laughs> The answer is no. The answer is just like, this is just about Chihiro's personal journey, mm -hmm. basically. But it's not in a way that I ever resented. I liked it. No, I love that sort of thing when it's done well. I liked it. And once you get to the train, which I saw... Miyazaki said that in his mind, that was the ending of the film when mm -hmm. she gets on the train by herself or, or with no face. But right. I always like that just because it is like that sense of, it just captures the feeling you have of looking at people you're passing on the train or in the car who you'll never meet, you'll never know. Mm -hmm. Their lives have an immense significance, but it's no, only to them and soon everyone will die. Yeah. And somehow he just, there's just, it's just a train ride scene, but that's what it captures. Every, all the people, the other people on the train are ghost people. Mm -hmm. Like they're just silhouettes of people with their bags and their hats. And they're clearly working class people getting off at their stop. And it just has that sense of, you don't value these people and you don't know their names. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of them. They matter. Yeah. And you should remember that. Yeah. Because, I, because life goes by really fast. It just, it just gets all that stuff, which I remember feeling that as a kid. Mm -hmm. Just having a sense being on the plane, for instance when I first flew of like going, going up over subdivisions and seeing all the houses and thinking there's a lot of people. I don't know any of their names. I'll probably never meet them. Mm -hmm. Just having kind of a, you could say a sentimental response to that. Yeah. But whatever the, some of the good parts of that are <laughs> Miyazaki captures 
Yeah, he does. That that it's a weird feeling, and yeah, that train scene is has a has a boy. I, I I hate to say things like this, but it has a profundity to it. Yeah, when they're and it just captures that weird displaced feeling of being in a train, looking out the window, seeing mm-hmm. the scenery go by, just that weird kind of eerie feeling of displacement. I mean, this movie does that sort of thing so well. What's that, listener? You want me to talk about liminality? Sure. I'll talk about <laughs> liminality. This movie might as well be called Liminality, the movie. I mean, I think it it gets at that that weird feeling of in-betweenness. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people don't know, there was a Dutch ethnographer named Arnold van Genup or Genup or something like that. He wrote a book called Rites of Passage, and the Rites of Passage are p- preliminary, liminal, and post-liminal stages. So your kid, that's preliminary. Your Chihiro, that's liminal. And post-liminal is you're an adult. And liminal is that that weird stage of in-between. And it's come to mean all kinds of things. There's websites that there's a, there's a Twitter account I followed called Lim- Liminal Spaces that I love, where they just have pictures of locations that have like empty swimming pools or a mall at night or an abandoned train station or an empty neighborhood in the snow or just a location that has that weird eerie feeling of being no longer what it was, but becoming something else. You know, it's like if you've been to a school, like you go to your school day after day after day, and then one day you go there at night and everything's shut down or you go there during the summer and it's got that weird abandoned, this isn't quite what it is, but it's also not quite what it else it could be in between feeling that's called liminality and uh, joseph campbell of course our good friend joseph campbell drew on the book rites of passage to create his three stages of which i forget what they are but basically his hero goes through a pre-stage a in-between stage and a post stage that's that's broadly speaking the campbellian monomyth the journey and I don't know that anybody's ever made a better movie than Miyazaki, if I may speak in total hyperbolic superlatives. I don't know that anyone's made a better movie, both about liminal spaces, just train stations, abandoned things, abandoned tunnels, things like that, places that feel liminal, and the feeling of being in a liminal stage yourself, of being in an in-between stage, of not being a kid, not quite being an adult, of not being able to find your footing and something being a little weird about that, a little eerie even. And then he connects it to the spiritual, which makes it that much more eerie. So <laughs> I know you wanted me to talk about that, listener. You'd been waiting the whole time. And you're welcome. Read Rites of Passage by Arnold Van Genup, the Dutch ethnographer and folklorist, to, to learn more about the concept of liminality. <laughs> a very popular concept on the internet these days. People love it. It's a little it. too popular. I kind of cringe every time i see it anymore i do too but there's no better word for the 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 feeling yeah that it's a good word for the feeling the way that people use it is we live in a liminal time yeah that, that's that, the kind of thing that just drives me nuts yeah and i'm sorry if, if you're used to that sort of thing and then you heard me go on about liminality i'm sorry when i when i like well, the kind of liminality i like is i'm at a hotel and I took the wrong hallway and now I'm looking at an abandoned swimming pool with no water in it. And, you, and it's just a weird, eerie feeling to that. And um, 
like this was designed for a purpose and it's no longer serving that purpose, but it hasn't quite found its purpose yet. It's its next purpose yet. Maybe its next purpose is to be destroyed or do we feel, enjoy that kind of uh, thing? It's not quite, it's not quite creepy. It's not quite like creepy pasta or anything like that, but it's just, uh, it's why people like to go urban exploring and stuff like that. I've always enjoyed walking it at night or I had a paper route when I was a kid, just being in locations when you're not supposed to be there. And when they feel like they're in a, in tran transition hmm. can it can be a really interesting eerie experience and this movie captures that as i said both in its broad plot it captures that for chihiro and for her journey and it captures the feeling of being in a train or being in a boat or being in a tunnel and feeling transition feeling passage and not and feeling that weird uncanny unsteady feeling that you get so i'll shut up about it but you're welcome. You're welcome, dear listener. <laughs> Do we live in liminal times? Eh, I don't know. I think I'm with Miyazaki. Everything's just always been bad, and now it still is. Welcome yeah. to, welcome to the nut house, or uh, I don't know, there's fun house, the fun house. Yeah. Welcome to the bathhouse. Joe Biden is Zubaba. No, Donald Trump maybe was Zubaba. Joe Biden's not Zubaba. Joe Biden's like the sludge monster or something. I don't know. Zubaba was played by Suzanne Plachette. And she is famous for Rome Adventure and The Birds. Like The Birds, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds? Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. <laughs> it's a very beautiful woman. Huh. Presumably not as beautiful by the time she did Zubaba. Presumably not. That I mean, that would have been in the 60s, right? So, right. Yeah. I mean... No, but... I mean, there she is in the 60s. Oh, yeah. Quite striking. Huh. Chihiro, played by the way, I think this is interesting. Just the American cast. Yeah. Samantha Darko, Lilo from Lilo and Stitch, and Samara Morgan, the child antagonist in the 2002 horror film, The Ring. So, Samantha Darko from Donnie Darko, Lilo from Lilo and Stitch, and the creepy kid from The Ring. Chihiro. Huh. Nice. Interesting. Wait, is that is that Japanese Chihiro or regular Chihiro? Uh, ah, no, I'm a racist! Yeah. Ah! <laughs> uh, These are the English voice actors. The English voice actors. Kamaji, played by David Ogden Steers, mm -hmm. who played Cogsworth in Beauty and the Beast and Governor Ratcliffe and Pocahontas and... Play was also in Lilo and Stitch, and but is known for other things like being Major Charles Emerson Winchester the Third MD on Mash. It's a great name if you're going to name somebody on a show. Yeah, for sure. Charles Major Charles Emerson Winchester the Third MD. We have some characters similarly named. He also narrated Lady in the Water. Weird. Sorry, I thought Jahiro was played by someone else. So I'm just trying to figure this out uh, okay yep devil a chase there's no l in there devay yeah, devay chase Devay. and she played uh whatever what was the ring girl's name samara morgan samara yeah and she still keeps super long hair at least in this picture from 2008 i guess and i have no memory of who she plays in donnie darko but apparently she plays in samantha darko oh the little sister Oh, the little sister. Okay. 
Because the big sister is what's her face? Maggie uh, Gyllenhaal. Maggie Gyllenhaal. <clears throat> All right. Any other fun casting things we need to know about? Nope. Michael Chiklis from The Shield plays Jihiro's father. Okay, fine. That makes sense. Oh, and Kamaji, of course, is David Ogden Steers, a.k.a. Cogsworth. Did you already say this? Yeah, okay. I said all of these things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was <clears throat> busy trying Including to... Including who she played from Donnie Darko. Yep, yep, yep. Sorry. I was busy being confused. I was in a state of liminality, folks. Maybe you've heard of it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> you've heard of it. <laughs> if you're as smart as I am. Uh, guys, uh, Ben, how many floating frogs out of 17 do you give to Spirited Away? I think I give it 17. Jake, how many floating frogs out of 17 do you give to Spirited Away? 15. 15. All right. I will give it 17. I think it is as close to a perfect movie as anything we've probably discussed on this podcast. And I do not think that that is hyperbole. I think that is just the facts. Uh, All right. What are we doing next time? I think we've already decided. Doctor Strange. I think Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Did we decide that? We decided we're doing it. I don't know if it's next. Huh. What's its release date? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the question there, governor. (laughs) I suspect it is the very next thing we're doing. May 2nd. That's the premiere. Okay. That's the next thing we're doing? May 6th. Pretty sure. Cool. We're going to do that. Jake, I'll just say I'll just say this on mic. We had a listener beg us to do not just the new Top Gun, but the regular Top Gun. Oh yeah, just throwing that out there. We we have at least one person who's like, you guys must do Top Gun. You have to tell me who that is when we're done. I will. I think he 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 or she carries weight though. Their opinion carries weight. But we'll leave you listeners in in suspense about that. We've got some other fun things coming up, but I'll tell you what else is fun, or who else is fun. His name is Jeffrey, and he is the winner of our Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness for today. Ben, what is it that makes Jeffrey so special and deserving of the Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness? Wow, let's see. That's hard. He spent an entire flight kicking the back of Bill Cosby's chair. That's what Jeffrey did? Yeah. I don't know what the reference to this is. A reference to famous Bill Cosby bit. I don't listen to or watch Bill Cosby bits. Yeah. And if he were a frog in a fantasy children's world, he would not be foolish enough to, to go for fake gold and get eaten by a big monster. There you go, Jeffrey. Probably the best compliment anyone's <laughs> ever paid you. If you were a frog in a fantasy world, you would not be foolish enough yeah. to go for the gold and get eaten. Wow, what an amazing alliterative sentence you just said there, Ben. Mm-hmm. If you were a frog in a fantasy world, you wouldn't be foolish enough, enough to, go, to, to go, go for, for the gold, gold and get eaten. Go for fake gold, I think I said. Go for fake gold. Yeah. And get eaten. It's a lot of F's and a lot of G's. Yeah, yep. And get eaten by a big monster. By a big monster. Yep. Well, congratulations, Jeffrey. Congratulations. Glad to be of service. And until next time. The Radish Spirit. <laughs>